This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off this week. An Ontario court has awarded $107 million to the families of six victims of Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752, which was shot down by Iran's Revolutionary Guard two years ago. The attack, which killed a total of 176 passengers, including 55 Canadians and 33 permanent residents, was an international act of terrorism, according to a May ruling by Ontario Superior Court of Justice. The decision made public on Monday follows a May ruling that the missile strikes amounted to an intentional act of terrorism, paving the way for relatives of those killed to seek compensation from Iran. In the damages decision, Ontario Superior Court Justice Edward Bellababa found that the missiles that shot down the Ukraine International Airlines flight were fired deliberately at a time when there was no armed conflict in the area. As a result, he found it constituted an act of terrorism that would invalidate Iran's immunity against civil litigation. We're going to drill down on what all of this means and whether this compensation will get awarded to these family members. Mark Arnold is among the lawyers who represented the families, and he joins us now to talk about the case and the decision. Mark, thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So these individuals, they've been awarded $107 million. Will they ever see this money? Yes. And, and, and why? Because they're entitled to it, because there's a court order awarding it to them, and indeed they will see the money. If your question really is how, it's not a question that I'm going to answer. Uh, and the reason I'm not is I do not want to give uh, Iran uh, uh, an opportunity to move their assets around in and out of Canada and so on. The next stage of this lawsuit, and I'm working on it this morning, this mm-hmm. very morning, it are, will be and is the collection efforts. Okay, so with that in mind and with needing to keep that private um, so that no ears hear what's going on behind the scenes, the assets, at least could you tell us, um, they are here in this country, presumably? Yes, money, uh, uh, real estate, uh, and other assets uh, are in, in this country, not just in this country, but also internationally. Our efforts are not going to be constrained uh, uh, in this country. We're going to be looking at other countries uh, uh, who have Iranian assets, and we'll be going to those countries to enforce our judgment. Uh-huh. Tell us about uh, the six victims um, who lost their lives, I mean, among the many, the dozens and dozens, and the family members that you represented in court. Tell us about these individuals and how their lives have been affected by the loss of their loved ones. Sure. So let's remember them today as we remember them this weekend, which is the second anniversary on January the 8th. The victims were, were uh, spouses, children, siblings, and so on. In this claim covering five families, there are six deceased. I'll give you one example. When we got the ruling in May, that was the liability ruling where the court found an intentional act of terrorism. Of course, I told my clients immediately. They, they, were, they were both sad and happy. And I called one of them the next morning and I said, how do you feel? He said, you know, he said, since this event happened, I've now had a good night's sleep. Mm. And so when you think, when you talk about what is justice, this is not just a money case. The fact that one of my clients was able to have a peaceful sleep finally after the tragedy is, is, is hugely important. So, of course, all of the victims, we can't bring back the deceased. But what we can do is give a sense of justice to those who have lost family. And that's what this court ruling has done. Justice in these types of cases is not just money. It's, it, it's having a sense that your loss has been listened to, particularly a public loss. Don't forget, this is the Canadian community that have lost people. We've lost 75 members of our Canadian community, students, 
spouses, professionals. It was a horrible tragedy, and it was intentional, and it was terrorist under Canadian law, and it was wrong. And by the way, if you have a question for Mark Arnold, um, civil litigation lawyer with Gardner Miller Arnold, LLP, uh, you're welcome to call in 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. Mark, remind us, because it is two years ago now and we've had the pandemic in between, what the Iran military has acknowledged in this act of terror in shooting down this plane. Yeah. Initially, they denied it. And then when the evidence was overwhelming, within a few days, they called it an accident. We provided expert opinion evidence to the court, including uh, experts in international law, in weaponry. Uh, we, we had an expert who was an, uh, a former airline pilot uh, for Air Canada, who had flown in and out of the region, that this could not have been a mistake. It is not possible for this to have been a mistake. It was a deliberate aiming of two missiles 30 seconds apart on a, on a departing commercial airline. Now, if there had only been one missile, maybe there would be some basis to say it was a, it was a mistake. But the moment the second missile went up, this is no mistake like pointing your pointing a gun at someone's head and shooting them and saying oh my goodness i've got the wrong person that is there is no defense and we were able to prove to the court that it was intentional under canadian law iran is under canadian law designated as a state sponsor of terrorism as an exception to what we call sovereign immunity that means that you typically cannot sue a foreign country in canada had this happened in the United States, we couldn't bring this claim in Canada. But Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism, and that was the legal basis. Around that time, there was some American military action as well, right? I mean, that's what they yes. tried to say at the very beginning. Yes. That yes. it was in and response, so, yeah. Well, and, and so one of the issues that we had to establish is whether what happened was within the context of an armed conflict, term of art, armed conflict. The court determined, based on evidence that we provided, that it was not an armed conflict, as that term is defined at law. It was a skirmish. What happened, is, as we know, is that the, 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 uh, the, the Iranian general Soleimani was assassinated in Iraq, right. um, and that led to a skirmish and so on. The Americans were involved in that. But that did not amount to an armed conflict in international law. It was a very important part of our case to establish that. And we did that through expert testimony. We have a question uh, for you, Mark, on the line here. Pat in Toronto, one of our occasional regular callers. Pat, go ahead. Yes, Mark. I'm just curious. Um, two questions. Uh, was there any defense put up by uh, the Iranian government? That's the first question. The answer, to, the answer is no. Iran was properly served with the claim. Service of the claim is mandated to fall on the shoulders of the government of okay. Canada. Okay, that's fine. Canada so served there, the claim. There was no defense. And secondly, are you working on a contingency basis? Um, your your question, frankly, is 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 irrelevant. It, it, it has well, nothing to do with anything. So, therefore, the answer is yes. You are working on a contingency basis. <laughs> There's no answer to that claim. Okay, sir, fine. That thank you. All right. You thank you, Pat. Thank you for calling in. I mean, certainly. Um lawyers work on behalf of families and are compensated. I think that's uh, unless it's pro bono work, but uh, presumably you were hired. Uh, presumably, indeed, I'm hired. I act for these families. Yes. In fact, other families are, will, are joining the claim this week, interestingly. Yeah, and so I a wanted, number of other uh, families are coming in. Mark, I wanted to ask you about that, too. Uh, you're representing or have until now represented the families of six victims. Uh, why are there not more um, families of, of, as you pointed out, uh, how many in total? We had 55 Canadians, 33 permanent residents who died in that shootdown. Why are there not more family members involved? Let me give you an example. About 30 minutes ago, I got a call from someone on behalf of a family, a, a woman living in Toronto who had lost, uh, lost someone uh, on, the, on the flight. And I said, why has, she, why has she waited two years? And the answer was paralysis, fear, upset, 
not knowing what to do, not having any help, and not having any advice. Now, everybody has a different reason for not joining uh, the claim, but that's part of what we've experienced. People, many of the families are just in, a, in such a state of despair that they don't know what to do. So, I, so that's part of the reason, as far as I understand. Um, and, and in addition, I don't go out and advertise the fact yeah. that I'm handling a claim against uh, against Iran. I don't advertise it. I, I don't, you know, I'm not an ambulance chaser as some lawyers are accused of being. Um, uh, what I what I expect is through the through the diaspora, the Iranian diaspora, that our efforts would be known, and in fact, they are now known. And, and you could certainly see how individuals would be very worried about the possibility of retribution by the Iran regime. Yeah, and in fact, uh, and in fact, uh, many of them are in our present claim. We have two. We have a John Doe and a Jane Doe plaintiff, and in the families that have approached me, they've almost all asked for anonymity, uh, and so they, you know they're going to become the Bill Smith, John Smith uh, plaintiffs coming forward. Many people have families in Iran who are fearful of reprisals, and in fact, we know that the Iranian government is putting a great deal of pressure on, on families in Iran to, 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 to take small amounts of reparation in exchange for signing documents and so on. Hmm. Uh, now, yesterday, when you held uh, the news conference uh, for the family members of these six deceased individuals, there was a hacking situation. Um, yeah. do you, could you comment on that for us? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm laughing about it today, but yesterday it was very serious. I've never seen something like that on a Zoom call. All of a sudden, as, as, as I was kind of going on and waxing eloquent, as, uh, as I sometimes do, um, all of a sudden pornographic pictures appeared uh, and rock and roll and people started hacking in. We immediately shut it down uh, and, and, and issued a new Zoom contact. I have no idea who the hackers are. Um, I don't think, I, I don't, I mean, this is not Iran doing hacking. That's not the way Iran operates. Okay. I think it was just a, a bunch of kids that were messing around. It had no effect and no bearing except uh, for its entertainment value. Okay. Um, so th- there is no link uh, to the decision and what was going on and what was being said at your news conference and the Iran regime in your mind? I have no evidence of that, and it's not the way that the Iran regime uh, uh, operates anyways. I mean, one of the things I'm looking for is, you know, has the Iranian regime commented uh, in Iran? I have a lot of contacts, and I've had no indication that the decision has been referenced by the Iranian regime. They might have, but I just don't know at this point. They didn't. Ha- I doubt they hacked in. In fact, in, in fact, I, in fact, I would invite them to come in. They still have an opportunity to come in and deal with this judgment. I mean, they have 60 days under the State Immunity Act uh, to come in, and and I would invite them in. I would encourage them to come in if they're listening to your newscast as or to this program, as I'm sure they probably might be. Come on in. Um, but if you come in, Iran, you're going to have to produce all of the evidence that you have as to what you did and how it happened. Iran has been very, very opaque. Uh, with respect to, to to disclosing what happened, could uh, the compensation amount go up if you get more family members involved? Well, the compensation stands as a precedent, and uh, uh, and and when and if I go back to the judge, I would simply be asking for an application of the precedent we have already to the new families. This judge has already wrestled with the very very complex legal questions of punitive damages, punishment damages. Remember, a hundred million dollars of this is to punish Iran, um, and and it was and that was a very very difficult legal analysis. If you read his reasons. His reasons belie the complexity that lies behind it. And I know that complexity because it was me that did the written submissions to the judge. It's complicated. What is the Canadian government doing? Is there, is there a similar effort on behalf of Canada against Iran? Yeah, so I have publicly been critical of the Canadian government, and I will continue being critical. The Canadian government, in my view, claims to be involved in a public law effort to convince Iran to come and negotiate. Iran will not negotiate. In fact, today, the minister, uh, or effective today, the minister of foreign affairs has said to Iran, if you don't come in, we're going to do something. I don't know what they're going to do, but and, and, and if you don't negotiate, we're going to do something. I don't know what the Canadian government is going to do. 
I suppose if uh, if I were part of the government, I might send some Canadian warships into the Gulf uh, and maybe sit for a few days uh, outside Iran's territorial waters. I'm not suggesting lobbing bullets into Iran, but just making a show that Canada, you know, Canada does not accept the murder of its citizens. But our government appears to be paralyzed. No one from our government has called me, either bureaucracy or elected officials, to, to, to say anything. We've attempted, we've attempted to connect with them. No one in our government has any interest in this private law claim that we're bringing. And I suspect our government doesn't support it. There's a politics involved here. We don't have diplomatic relations with Iran. I think our government would love to restore diplomatic relations with Iran, but for this incident. So our government has been very difficult with us. I thank you very much for the information and your insight. Uh, It really helped us understand the story. Thank you very much, Mark. Anytime. My pleasure. Good day, everyone. Mark Arnold is a civil litigation lawyer with Gardner Miller Arnold LLP. Jane for Libby. And still to come, we need some clarity on indoor gatherings of five people as part of the public health restrictions now in effect. I will ask Toronto's Chief Medical Officer Eileen Davila about this when she joins us next. Dr. Davila will also take your calls, 416-360-0740 or one 740 You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is away. We're pleased to welcome to Fight Back Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Devilla, about the Omicron surge, hospitalizations, and the new restrictions. That's what we want to talk with the doctor about uh, for our remaining time here on Fight Back today. Dr. Devilla will also take your calls at 416 360 0740 or 1-866-744-740. Oh, and by the way, if you were listening earlier in the hour, Brad Ross with the City of Toronto, uh, we lost his line, but he did call back to say that at the moment, the absenteeism rate for the City of Toronto, or at least last week, was 12%, but they are in the process of working on a plan that, uh, should it come to that, they would be prepared to deal with a 60% absenteeism rate. Back to Dr. Davila. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Before we get into the business of the pandemic, I just want to ask you how you're doing after your surgery last month. Well, first, thank you for asking. And, uh, you know, I will say that the surgery went smoothly and recovery has been unremarkable, which is exactly what you want. Uh, when you're having surgery. So all is well on that regard. So thanks. Well, it's great news. And I mean, you know, we all feel like we have come to know you, Dr. Davila, because we hear you, we see you on TV, uh, we see you at the news conferences. So you've been a reliable voice. So people were concerned. So that is great news. What do you well, make? Thank you. And I, I'm glad, uh, you know, that uh, we've developed a good uh, doctor-patient relationship, <laughs> yes. uh, right? I think that's really important and part of the uh, therapy process. Yeah, absolutely. Some 5 million patients, right? (laughs) More or less. More or less. (laughs) So what do you make about this jump in hospitalizations? And, you know, we're talking province-wide, now more than 2,100. Yesterday was just shy of 1,300. Yeah, well, this is, in fact, what we had anticipated might happen, knowing what we know about this Omicron variant, uh, very, very transmissible. And the early data were suggesting that while it, it may not lead to as much hospitalization as previous variants of COVID-19 had, the issue is, is that when you have a large number of cases all arising simultaneously, even a small proportion of those cases requiring hospitalization, because it's a big number, turns out to be a big number itself. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Add to this, uh, you know, the conversation it sounds like you were having with with Brad Ross from the city. This is not something that only affects the city. We are seeing that people are unable to attend work 
because of COVID infection or exposure to somebody with COVID. And um, that is creating additional pressure across all sectors. And that includes healthcare in our hospitals. If we were to say uh, that we are in a crisis, I mean, we're definitely in a crisis in terms of what's happening with the Omicron variant, but in terms of the Toronto hospitals and how many patients they can handle, give us an idea of where we are with uh, the hospitalizations just in the city and if there's any concern about having to turn away patients. Well, you know, again, uh, without having a direct line of sight with, with the hospitals, I can speak to this at a very high level. Just came off a call with a number of our healthcare partners. And certainly what they're seeing is a rapid increase in respective demand for hospital services, coupled with uh, some challenges with respect to staffing because of the widespread impact of Omicron. That being said, I'm also seeing this remarkable resilience across the sector, uh, lots of conversation on sharing of resources and supporting each other, uh, both you know within acute care, but also looking at supports that are being provided across all sectors of health care. That would include community care, uh, long-term care, home care, all the partners are working with each other uh, in in a model uh, where we're, we're trying to make sure that resources are being deployed where they're most needed, um, you know, so that we can actually address the healthcare needs of the entire population. So that's the nature of the conversation that's happening at healthcare tables and at planning tables on this issue. Now, the restrictions that went into effect today that are now in effect combined with the ongoing booster program, uh, will this help curb the spread in a noticeable way or is it a bit too late? Well, I think this is an application of what we have learned over the course of the last couple of years of the pandemic. We know that when it comes to COVID-19, the more interaction there is between people, especially with people outside of household, uh, the more transmission you get. So uh, certainly limiting uh, opportunities for interaction, um, especially non-essential interaction as much as possible, is part and parcel of reducing uh, the impact, the negative impact of COVID-19. It also happens to provide, you know, us the opportunity across all the vaccination partners to really drive out booster doses of vaccine. And in, in, in some cases, it's first or second doses of vaccine as well. So we know that vaccination is an incredible tool still at our disposal. And we are seeing increasingly in research, both here um, and around the world and in experience as well, that uh, with vaccination and especially with booster doses on board, we are seeing uh, protection from the most serious outcomes associated with COVID-19 infection, mm-hmm. hospitalization, ICU admissions significantly reduced when you are appropriately vaccinated and especially with booster dose on board. I knew our time would fly by. We just have a few minutes left. Sita in Mississauga would like to uh, offer you a comment or a question. Go ahead, Sita. Hi, Jane. Thank you, Dr. De Silver, for your dedication. Davila. Dr. Davila. <laughs> Thank you. And we're very happy that you're doing good. Weeks ago, Omicron started to explode around the world and Canada. Medical experts all along were saying, brace for the worst. Do you think if public measure was in place one week before Christmas, this could have made a big difference to slow down the numbers, since we already know that most cases always goes up after holidays. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Go ahead, doctor. So thank you, Sita, for the question. And, you know, I, I can tell you that over the course of the pandemic, there will be time for, uh, you know, reflection as we move forward. But I think at this moment in time, as we look at uh, what's happening in front of us, our focus should be on what can we do now, right? We are where we are at this point in time. And I think that when I think about what is most important at this point in time and what members of the public can do, um, it is getting vaccinated. Uh, if you haven't been vaccinated yet, please go and get that vaccination. Start that process so that you get that protective benefit. And by definition, confer that protective benefit to those around you. 
We're asking people to reduce their interactions as much as possible, be very judicious around, you know, what kinds of interactions and outings you're participating in. And certainly there are uh, new regulations from the province uh, seeking to limit those interactions in order to blunt this wave. And of course, there are all the other measures that are out there that we have spoken about over the course of the past many, many months now. Wearing a good quality mask, uh, particularly if you have to interact with people outside of your household and especially in indoor spaces. Um, the, you know, wearing a mask is, is one of the things that we can do uh, and a good quality mask uh, is one of the things that we can all do to help reduce the risk. And of course, there's physical distancing as well staying home when you're sick, washing your hands. You're, I know, very familiar with uh, these bits of advice that we have offered over the last several months, and they're still valid and still extremely important for all of us to continue practicing. Dr. Davila, I, I personally just need a little bit of clarification on the indoor gatherings of five people. So back at the beginning of the pandemic, it was uh, the same five people. Everybody had a bubble. I think it was maybe 10 at some point. So these indoor gatherings, could it be five people on one night and then five different people a second night? Or should this, the five people be the same five people all the time? So uh, looking at the provincial regulations, they do talk about a maximum of five people. What's not stipulated in the regulations, because I, I believe it's not part of it, but is good practice, the more we are able to limit the number of contacts and interactions, the better able we will be to reduce transmission of COVID-19. So to the extent that you can limit interactions to a smaller group of people, you know, that is absolutely part and parcel of helping get us through this challenging Omicron wave, blunting its impact so that healthcare and other essential services are there for all of us because we rely on these services, not only for COVID care in the case of healthcare, but for all the other medical conditions that, of course, come up over the course of day-to-day life. And should we conduct ourselves any differently if we've had our third shot uh, more than two weeks ago? Should we feel that we are better protected, therefore we might not need to worry as much about these restrictions? Well, you know, at this point, Jane, I would say that's not the way to go. What we are seeing with respect to having, uh, you know, a vaccination on board and that booster dose on board is that it reduces the likelihood of serious outcomes associated with COVID-19 infection, but doesn't necessarily give you a guarantee against COVID-19 infection itself. So I would ask that everybody, all of us, one, get vaccinated, and even if you are vaccinated, to reduce interactions at this point in time so as to try to limit the spread of COVID-19 in our community and to protect those essential services that we need the most. It is now clear. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dr. Davila. Thank you. Dr. Eileen Davila is Toronto's Medical Officer of Health. Jane for Libby, Bob Komsik will be in this chair for the next couple of days. I'm off to celebrate Ukrainian Christmas, if you're celebrating. Christos Rizjajice. And uh, I will talk with you next on Monday. Bob is everywhere. He'll be hosting the next two days, and he's got the news up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off this week. Thank you for joining me. Well, here we are in another lockdown, a modified lockdown, but a lockdown nonetheless. Indoor dining is paused. In fact, any events or attractions that take place indoors are currently not allowed. Gyms and fitness centers also closed. Retail is open, but at 50% capacity, and personal care services are allowed at 50% capacity. And there are caps on gatherings, five people indoors, 10 people outdoors. Outdoors. Later in the show, Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen DeVilla, will join us and take your questions. But first, Jan De Silva, President of the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Jan, welcome. Thanks, Jane. 
Well, as this long journey through the pandemic gets longer, what is your reaction to these latest public health restrictions? Look, I, I just need to say on behalf of our members, the business community of all shapes and sizes, huge frustration about another round of so-called temporary measures. What our members, what the business community is calling for is for governments to get serious about COVID as a continuing condition and putting tools in place that will sustain us through so that we don't need to go into these temporary lockdowns uh, every quarter. So a lot of frustration pent up in the business community with the, the recent announcements of the past few days. Jan, the last time you and I spoke, the premier was against implementing a vaccine passport or certificate program, and you were a proponent. Uh, Obviously, that ended up being an excellent idea. And I know the Toronto Board of Trade is all about brainstorming ideas. So what is being discussed, not just for the pandemic, but getting out of the pandemic, some of these solutions you're referencing? Look, thanks for asking, Jane. And I think what's important to set the stage for for callers and your listeners is, um, yes, our small businesses, our restaurants, our gyms are badly impacted every time there are restrictions imposed on them. We've also got hundreds and thousands of workers, essential workers, healthcare workers, those working in logistics, e-commerce, food manufacturing, who've shown up and been on the job day after day after day to keep the economy going, to enable people to work from home. And there are solutions, different solutions needed for those two types of organizations. So happy to go either direction. You let me know where we'd like to focus first. Well, let's start with uh, the businesses that have had to shut down completely, at least temporarily, as you point out. And I think the frustration with many, particularly the restaurants uh, that we are constantly in contact with, yes, we did get the proof of immunization as a requirement, but it wasn't until yesterday that we actually mandated use of a a standardized QR code-based system and required that businesses use a Verify Ontario app. For months, we've been working with bobbling with paper and and pens and other things to kind of track this. So businesses were frustrated at the, the complexity of trying to juggle multiple systems. Also, the restaurants that I was speaking to before the latest announcement were saying, like, love the Verify app to verify QR codes, but for goodness sakes, couldn't we simply allow that as a tool for digital contact tracing and exposure notification as required, rather than having multiple staff and patrons still having to use pen and paper to record contact tracing information? So simply examples about business being frustrated that we we do a little bit, but just not go the full measure about putting tools in place that would make it easy to operationalize mitigation. Yeah, that sounds like a good solution. Uh, You know, another option might have been allowing restaurants to continue with indoor dining, but uh, for people to show proof of being triple vaccinated before they go inside. Because uh, as we know, these hospitalization cases are primarily those who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. Well, and I I think the other challenge with the system is that where the federal government announced that federally regulated businesses required uh, workers in the workforce to have proof of immunization, in the case of the province, they left it up to businesses to decide. So you had restaurants with situations where they were required to check that their patrons are immunized but did not have I'll fall back unless they choose to, to require their workers to do. So it just seems inconsistent to Mm -hmm. be able to leave it uh, open like that. So uh, again, it's one of of a range of examples of things that have just totally frustrated the business community almost two years into this pandemic. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, the 50% capacity businesses now. Well, for those businesses, once again, they'll be looking for predictable models of support to help them weather the storm. Um, We also are looking for... um, tools that will help them in reopening. I mean, can we get more rapid testing available? We were very pleased with the Prime Minister's announcement this morning about 140 million new rapid test kits to be available in January. But, you know, enabling those businesses like gyms, like restaurants, where there are volumes of people required to make those businesses viable, to make available rapid tests to try to prevent the transmission of people that just simply don't have uh, symptoms. 
as well as the financial uh, supports that government are needing to put in place once again on a temporary measure for these businesses. Jen, and I'm speaking with Jen De Silva, president of the Toronto Region Board of Trade. How desperate is this situation with a, another at least three-week lockdown uh, for those businesses that do need to close their facilities uh, for this time period, especially the independent businesses? Look, it's it's uh, you know it's just one more of a continuing um, two years where they've been having to shoulder the burden of the pandemic. And I can tell you, uh, several of the restaurants that we're in regular contact with, in fact, had to shut down before Christmas because of outbreaks among their staff. So not only did they lose the Christmas season, they're now facing another restriction on indoor dining. So it's it's the longer this uh, rolls out, the harder it is. The other challenge that many of your listeners may not be available as well are uh, orders of government are announcing short-term supports for business. Much of that is repayable. So these businesses, two years in, are starting to be burdened in debt that it's just going to take them years to dig out from. So that's just, again, another continuing challenge that they need to face. Are you, okay. Are you referencing the rebates for hydro and property taxes? Well, it's yeah, things like that. Anything that's been deferred. Um, that has to be repayable. Uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business had done uh, some studies, boy, several months ago, saying the average small business had accumulated more than $180,000 of repayable debt as a result of both government incentives and also just trying to keep lights on in their operations and hang in there to get through the other side. For a small business, that's going to take years to repay once they get a more normal operating environment available to them. Now, we've seen the hospitalization numbers jump uh, today by uh, about 900 to more than 2,000, almost 2,100 in the province. Yesterday, we were just under 1,300. I mean, the premier had to do something, Jen. I I guess the thinking is that if we keep more people away from each other in whatever circumstances they might normally be together, that we're going to slowly get a handle on this surge. Now, without a doubt, something had to be done because they're very valid concern about overwhelming um, the hospital systems and the healthcare systems. But the piece I would point to, um, two things. Number one, I think the province has done an amazing job of vaccination rollout, of booster rollout, of making that available. I think the communities come together very strongly. We've got incredibly high vaccination rates. I think our challenge, however, though, is it's that's not the only piece of the solution that we need in place. We talked before about contact tracing, exposure notification. For those businesses that simply need to continue to operate with staff physically on site, we need to make sure that mitigations are clearly available to them so they can operate. If you're a food manufacturing site, you can't afford to have all of your staff off sick. So things like access to improved ventilation systems, um, things like making sure that Boosters are already available and on-site workplace testing is available for them. There's a number of things in addition to the all-important vaccination that could have and can be put in place to help businesses weather through this. We will be discussing absenteeism actually coming up next because of the Omicron surge. Jan, before I let you go, for your members of the Toronto Board of Trade, what kind of assistance, support, motivation, guidance are you offering? Well, we're doing a couple of things. For those that are having to work on reduced capacity, we're, we built in a lot of resilience programs, helping them convert their businesses more digital, uh, supporting them with uh, ways of better managing supply chain and distribution relationships so they can continue to operate. For those businesses, and there's a number of them up around the Pearson Logistics Zone, we're working very closely to convene those businesses. Those are the Canada Post, the Amazons, the Walmarts, to make sure we understand what are the problems they're trying to solve, where do they need uh, government support around policy or regulatory changes for they so they can create a safe environment for their workers to operate in. So we're really focused on both ends of the spectrum. Those essential businesses that remain open, how do we help them put the tools and safety uh, protocols in place? And for those that are struggling with restrictions, how do we help them be resilient with programs that can address the pain points they're facing? Excellent work and certainly very timely. Jan, thank you so much for your time.
Thanks, Jane. Bye-bye. Jan De Silva is the CEO and president of the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Jane, for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, and we're going to change topics now to an issue that will affect everyone who has a job, and that is absenteeism due to the Omicron surge. You will either have to stay home and isolate for at least five days if you're exposed or if you have mild symptoms. Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario, said last week, we can expect an absenteeism rate across all industries of 20 to 30 percent. But at the City of Toronto, they're preparing for the possibility of a 60% absenteeism rate. Joining us to discuss, Brad Ross, City of Toronto's Chief Communications Officer. Brad, nice to talk to you. You as well, Jane. Why 60% and why not 20 to 30%? Well, it's it, that's a worst-case scenario, Jane. So we need to plan for worst-case uh, being a, uh, a public service and the largest employer in Toronto, a lot of services that uh, that residents rely on uh, from their municipalities uh, in, in Toronto, uh, of course, being uh, the, you know the largest city in the country, uh, we need to be ready for and help residents be ready for uh, a worst case scenario of you know between fifty and sixty percent is 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 what we're uh, currently looking at, and so we're doing the planning to to ensure that if that happens, we can continue to deliver those critical and essential services. Brad, I just want to invite our listeners, our Zoomer radio listeners, to get in on the conversation as well. Uh, Wondering, are you feeling the effects of absenteeism in your workplace? How is everyone adjusting? How uh, are these absences being handled? Numbers to call are 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. So, Brad, will 40% of the city's workforce, 40 to 50%, be able to cover all the priority areas properly? No, and so that's why we we need to make sure that those critical and essential services, for example, um, and let's let's leave aside for a second emergency services like fire and, and paramedics and police, but uh, our the city's uh, ten long term care homes that we directly operate, uh, our shelters, our vaccination clinics. We need to make sure that that those critical services, um, you know, garbage collection, uh, water main repairs. Uh, Toronto water uh, can remain safe. Those kinds of, of services need to continue, uh, and they will continue. And so that may mean, and not saying that's happening yet, but it may mean that, that other services that we provide um, may need to be reduced or uh, closed entirely so that we could, for example, either redeploy staff to other areas or if we simply can simply cannot fill uh, a day with, with scheduled work because people are sick, um, we we need to 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 be ready for that and make sure that residents understand exactly what is happening. And so, you know, our website, for example, uh, Toronto.ca, will continually be updated in real time uh, whenever there are changes to, to services. So we know yesterday. Uh, the province uh, announced uh, earlier this week that um, indoor uh, recreation facilities, for example, will be closed. So gyms, indoor swimming, obviously it's indoor this time of year, but swimming pools, uh, uh, arenas uh, will be closed, are now closed, in fact, to the public. So those employees who are providing those services become available to us to be redeployed to to help in shelters, for example, or long-term care homes. Uh, or at vaccination clinics. So all of this work uh, has been going on, in fact, since the middle of December when we uh, reactivated our emergency operations center to plan for a high number of unplanned absences and to coordinate uh, that staff redeployment that uh, that will be necessary uh, should, should we reach that, uh, that, that, that point. I'm just thinking about the task in ensuring that you have certain employees with uh, a specific skill set and then mm-hmm. being able to move them with that skill set to uh, a different place where they are qualified to work effectively. Right. For sure. So, um, you know, we, we have a number of staff when the pandemic was first, uh, you know, when we, we first encountered this almost two years ago now, 
we had to redeploy a number of staff, and we uh, we trained those staff uh, for you know certain uh, certain functions. Obviously, we can't you know deploy staff or train staff to be suddenly become a firefighter or a paramedic. Um, clearly, you know that that that's not what we're doing there. With respect to emergency services, we are relying on overtime, uh, shift extensions, callbacks. Um, Looking at our deployment models, so for example, uh, when we, you know, we're going to see uh, high unplanned absences, say in paramedics, that Toronto Fire, and this is happening today now, will uh, respond uh, to uh, a 911 call uh, and determine if there is a patient or an injury that requires uh, paramedics. Uh, if not, then then paramedics can you know continue to focus on those high critical uh, high high priority uh, you know critical calls that, uh, that that keeps the city safe. So that Toronto Fire uh, you know can perform uh, you know obviously certain uh, first aid CPR functions if necessary. So they'll respond first, uh, allowing paramedics to to be available for those more high high uh, high priority type calls. But what about the time uh, that it takes to determine that if it's an emergency situation, is that not going to slow down the responders? So we, we will absolutely see, you know, low priority calls, for example, will take will take longer to respond to. That is uh, that is a fact. So nine one one and those uh, those skilled uh, operators will triage those calls as they always do, uh, and, uh, and and so we're working through all of that so that. Um, you know, if, for example, we get a lot of 911 calls that, you know, hang up, uh, we call them back, there's no answer. So we do need to dispatch uh, emergency responders. And so Toronto Fire will send a single truck to determine whether or not there is, in fact, uh, an emergency. Uh, and if, if there's a patient uh, there, then, then they will call uh, for an ambulance to, to respond. So uh, we're trying to uh, to triage those calls in a way that ensures that, that our high-priority calls are being responded to as quickly as possible. Will we see a, uh, a slowdown in low-priority calls? For sure. Uh, will we see an impact even in terms of response times to high-priority calls? Uh, yes, but very, very minimally. Uh, people need to be assured that when they call 911 uh, and, uh, you know, to... to, to you know, to not 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 to uh, not to be alarmist, but if your house is on fire, you can be assured that Toronto Fire is absolutely going to be showing up to that call as a high priority call. Right, Brad Ross is the City of Toronto's Chief Communications Officer. It's Jane for Libby, and this is on the minds of everybody who holds a job in the city and across the province. How is Omicron going to affect my workplace? Uh, here at the Zoomerplex, uh, Brad, we've pretty much emptied the facility out again. Moses has sent everybody home who can work from home. So we have mm-hmm. our, we call them, you know, our first responders, our small group that was here in the early days of the pandemic. Pandemic, uh, before the vaccines and before everybody got the clear to, to start to come back. So we've implemented that. We try not to, uh, people who are on the afternoon shift don't, uh, don't uh, mingle with people who are on the morning shift, just trying to keep people as separate as possible. And, and that's mm-hmm. what I'm curious about. I find this fascinating, actually, how companies are doing this. So yeah. that's why I'd like to hear from you as well, uh, your company. Sure. What are you doing? 416. 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. You mentioned about nine one one, so we get that um, fires high priority as as always injuries mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Uh, let's talk about your other priority areas and certainly clean water, waste, sewage, garbage pickup, that kind of thing. Uh, will that yeah. be impacted by absenteeism? Uh, it, it, it will. Uh, we, we, we need to anticipate that it will. So that's why we, you know, we, we do those, uh, do those redeployments or, uh, within a certain division of the city, um, perhaps, uh, scale back a particular service or stop doing a particular service so that we can redeploy those staff within that area, uh, to, to those high priority, uh, services like garbage collection. Uh, snow removal, much of which is contracted out, but still those contractors uh, could be impacted as well. So, uh, snow, snow clearing, um, you know, obviously it's January. We're going to get snow. That snow needs to be cleared. Water main breaks are going to occur. Uh, we need to make sure we, we have staff available to, to fix those. 
uh, ensuring that our Toronto, that our water remains safe, of course, is, is, is a high priority. And so, um, so, so that work is all underway. Our long-term care homes and our shelters are going to be staffing those facilities that are going to become ill or going to need to isolate as a result. And so we need to be able to then redeploy staff, uh, into those areas to provide not uh, those skilled kinds of, of, you know, nursing skills, for example, but there are other things that that may that, that staff may need to do with respect to, say, uh, you know, cleaning, for mm-hmm. example. So, um, you know, seventy five percent of of city staff have been in the workplace, you know, on the front line since the start of this pandemic. Yes. Uh, the, the the balance, uh, folks like myself, are able to to work from home. So. Um, you know the the need to uh, to do all that physical distancing in the workplace and masking, uh, of course, doesn't apply when we're working from home. But we all are required. There is a mandate, the City of Toronto uh, policy, that requires all employees to be fully vaccinated, and so uh, so that provides uh, another degree of. Uh, of, of protection and, and, and health and safety is, uh, is, is our number one priority for our employees, but also the public we serve. So we need to make sure that our employees are fully vaccinated. And, and we know, though, that with this variant, even if you are fully vaccinated, uh, because of it is so highly transmissible, that, uh, that you may well get sick. And that's why we're doing the planning we're doing uh, and, and may need to close some services so that we can redeploy staff to ensure that those critical services that residents rely on uh, are delivered day in and day out. And this is a seven-day-a-week uh, effort, by the way. Obviously, yes. Uh, I just have a couple more minutes with you and three more questions. Uh, sure. In terms of 311 accessibility, is that still as efficient as always? At this moment, it is. So so thankfully, we're, uh, we're, we're 311 is holding uh, steady and, and uh, calls are being responded to. Now, you may, you know, you may get a, get through to us uh, and have a service request that may be delayed at some point. Right now, we're, we're doing okay, um, but that's why we talk about those worst-case scenarios and that planning that we're having to do for, for high absenteeism uh, that could affect 311. But also the response time uh, from from the area for which you're calling. You know, you call three one one, and we put in a service request to to uh, you know, say a pothole, for example. Uh, that that may take longer to respond to. Again, that's not happening today, but we do need to to plan for you know the, at least the next four to six weeks. Uh, Oh, Brad, I'm, you're breaking up. Oh, he's gone. <laughs> uh, well, we were wrapping up, Ziv. I don't know if we want to get Brad back for uh, final comments or if we'll just move on. I think we're pretty much done. The only thing I wanted to learn, uh, in addition to all the great information Brad Ross was providing us, uh, is what is the current absentee picture uh, for the city of Toronto? What percentage of employees right now are absent? So, once we get into our next guest, I will get uh, Zeev to find out that information and pass it along. In the meantime, though, we need to take a break. Coming up in the second half of Fight Back, Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila, will take your calls. So you'll want to grab a line for Dr. Davila, 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. And right after the break, the un unprecedented decision for family members of victims of the Ukrainian Airlines plane shootdown in Iran. Will they get the money that's awarded to them? We will find that out next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.